Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of You, Me, Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and today is episode 94 with my guest, Eric F. Friedenson. You can find Eric on Instagram at F. It's E F D O T, uh, or at F. Studio.com. Uh, today on the show, we talk about. Uh, we talk about skateboarding culture and finding work that aligns with who you are and creating art that brings people together and helps people feel understood and seen. Eric is a sweetie pie and I enjoyed talking with him and I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Uh, before we get to the episode though, please give Yumi Empathy a follow on Instagram and Twitter at Yumi Empathy. Uh, we have a Patreon uh, page. It's at patreon.com slash yumiempathy. You can support the show there. Uh, a free way to support the show is leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. Uh, I love five stars, but be honest and write a review. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. Helps out the show, and uh, I would be forever honored and grateful if you left a review that maybe references how great this show is and how much it touched your life. Um, But, you know, speak from the heart. I love you. Uh, What else? What else? Uh, Let's see. Um, uh, Oh, uh, oh, yes. So uh, we're doing a 100th episode celebration. Uh, We'll be at 100 episodes in just six episodes, which which is bonkers. But... Thus far, as of this recording, I've only received one of your stories. So, uh, the 100th episode celebration is uh, celebrating 100 episodes, but it's also including you and your story. So, if you go to Instagram, at Yumiempathy, you'll see a couple of posts there about the 100th episode bash and how you can participate. So, please do that and send me your stories. I want to hear from you and I want to celebrate you and include you in episode 100. Uh, okay. I think that I think that's it. Um, I uh, I love you and I appreciate you. I'm so happy you're here. We're creating a safe space for feely humans to be who they are and to be seen and understood, just as Eric and his art helps people uh, feel seen and understood. So let's get to it. This is Eric F. Friedenson in episode ninety four. To you, me, empathy, a podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day-to-day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of you, me, empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, Break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today I am doing joyful varial kickflips with skateboarder, artist, muralist, and human connector, Eric F. Friedenson. Hello, Eric. Hey, how's it going, Noan? It's going well. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. I'm excited to chat with you. Of course. So you and I have, um, I mean, 
I grew up uh, riding skateboards and I, I uh, maybe from the age of like 10 to like through 22 or something, I skated. I, I love skateboarding. So you're a man after my own heart. <laughs> Was that your favorite trick? The varial kickflips? I do. I do love that. I, I don't think I can. Uh, I could probably still do one of those, but I, I did enjoy that. Yeah. <laughs> Cool, man. Yeah, that's uh, longer than I thought you were skating. I thought you only skated for a few years, but that's like 12 years. Yeah, it was a while. I I, um, I loved it. I, You know what? And let's let's just get into it now. Like the thing I love about skateboarding is, uh, well, first of all, it got me out of the house. And so that was always a sort of positive. And the second thing is it's sort of roots in sort of the punk rock sort of counterculture, fuck the man sort of uh, ethos. And that's, that's kind of why, you know, sort of got me into it as a, as a teenager. Um, I don't know if you can relate to that at all. Hell yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So how, how long Um, have you been skateboarding? Yeah. I guess it's been about 16 years. Okay. Wow. Um, but but I had a couple of years where I couldn't skate because of an injury. Oh yeah. So minus, minus two, about 14 years. That's right. So what like when you first got into it was was there people around you saying don't do it? Was there it was, you know were you, was it kind of like a safe environment to kind of just go do your thing? Back when I first got into it, I guess I was 12 years old and my brother had had been given a skateboard a couple of years prior to that uh a crappy Toys R Us skateboard oh, yeah. and he didn't really use it. And I just saw it in the garage. And then I saw some kids skating in town. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs of New York city and I just thought it was the coolest thing ever seeing those kids skate. And once I started picking it up and trying it out and I was very bad at it, you know, very clumsy. I didn't have much raw talent at it. Sure. <laughs> um, I was falling and scraping my knees and elbows all the time. And my parents were a little bit wary of, oh, no, like, is he going to get hurt doing this? Is it, sure. is it safe? It's also like not it's frowned upon if you're it, it's it's a form of vandalism in a lot of people's eyes. Right. It's noisy and, and you're grinding on the ledges. It's damaging the property. So I wouldn't say that it was encouraging everywhere. But my parents didn't t- tell me, like, you can't skate. They just said, you got to wear your pads. You got to wear your helmet. I remember one time I actually faked an injury because I didn't want to wear my pads. <laughs> I I just said, "Hey, mom, like I fell on my chin and it's all because of the wrist guards. Like I couldn't catch myself. I just like slipped out and took a face plant. But in reality, I had actually rubbed the grip tape of my skateboard on my face oh, <laughs> to man. make it look like I was bleeding." <laughs> That's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Um yeah, I I I do remember, like, uh, there was a time, you know, I grew up in Southern California, and there was a time where in my late teens or, or, yeah, it was around there, like, people started, the city started putting on, like, you know, uh, little metal pieces where you can't, you can't grind ledges or, you know, they just basically just made it not very fun for (laughs) us skateboarders. Yeah, the skate stoppers. Yeah, exactly. I don't know, I, I... I'm always fascinated when I uh, encounter skateboarders, especially, you know, grown adult skateboarders. You don't like I don't encounter them as as, as much as I used to. And I I like I think I'm drawn to skateboarders because of that whole sort of ethos. Like what so as a skateboarder now, like what what does it give you? What what's what is it how does it fill you up? Like what what aspect of it does it uh, sort of kind of fill your heart because for me it's it's you know i'm i'm living on dirt roads but so it's not very conducive to skateboarding but like for me it's like i go back to it because of that sort of punk rock ethos yeah i don't think i i go back to it for that reason it's more um it's more closer to meditation than anything else Mm. and and it's exercise it's meditation it's um a way for me to push myself and be creative and expressive in a completely different way than what I do for my work. Because uh, even though I'm an artist and a designer and it's, it, it is very expressive, it still can turn into feeling like a job sometimes. Sure. And I've, I've never pushed skateboarding in that direction to, to make it feel like a job. Never. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional skateboarder. 
But once I found what I really love to do in art and design, um, I didn't really go after trying to be a professional skateboarder anymore. And I think if I did, it would have had the same effect. It would have started feeling like a job. Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah. I keep that sacred. I keep that sacred. Oh, yeah. I love that. No, I like that. That makes total sense to me. It's 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 safe from the the grind of of sometimes work can be even if it's work that we truly love it you know it's uh it's separate from that and it's uh yeah i i think running you know and and hiking nowadays that's that's kind of the sacred space for me the meditative sort of exercise yeah i love that yeah it also makes me feel like a kid again just exploring and looking yes. at architecture in a different way and and getting into a little bit of trouble and like <laughs> doing things that you're not supposed to do like getting into I don't know. I skate a lot at skate parks. I live around the corner from a little DIY skate park. Nice. Um, and I also just use it for transportation. And then every week or two, I'll go out with some friends and actually have like a really good session. Uh, but yeah, it definitely brings me back to when I was a kid. And I always want to keep that part of myself alive because that does really feed back into other areas of my life, including work. So it's important to me for sure. Yeah, I do. I love that. I, I do think it's very, I, I think it is important to kind of connect to our sort of childlike antics and childlike whims and joys that we we experience as children, because there is, there is an innocence to that. There is like this unadulterated sort of, you know, uh, removed from the, the bullshit of uh, the corporate structures. There's, there's just this unadulterated joy about it that I think is good to hold on to. Yeah, exactly. There's no rules. There's no uh, score like most other sports. There's no mm. teams. It's really yeah. just you doing, you doing you. Yeah, I love that. So how, like you said, like uh, skateboarding sort of ties into your work. In, in what way? Well, for the longest time, I didn't want to bring skateboarding into my work because I thought it would make me look unprofessional. Mm. Uh, mm. I stu- I studied graphic design as a way to take my art and make it marketable make it into a career I, I didn't really i wasn't really interested in going the gallery route of just making a bunch of stuff and trying to get people to buy it hmm. i was um interested in graphic design because i could actually use art in a commercial way to solve pro- solve problems and like and help people accomplish things and make an impact uh, i'm still interested in both sides of it but when i was deciding what to study in undergraduate uh, degree i decided graphic design and I was looking up to all of these professional graphic designers in the branding world or in the packaging design or photography, whatever. And I just saw this image of what a professional designer was and skateboarding didn't really fit into that for me for some reason. And it took me until about four years ago for me to really start embracing it again in my work. Because when I was a kid, I loved making skateboard themed art or tying it in. Mm-hmm. But then when I went to college, I think I had this distorted perspective of what a professional designer looked like and that you couldn't show all your quirks and your weirdness because, well, I think I, we look up to these people who do show their quirks and their weirdness, but those those are the people who are already successful. They're what the don't exception about, to the rule or something. Or it seems like that. I'm not sure if, if, they're, if it's an exception or a rule or both, but yeah. I think we, we look up to those people who are... Uh, who are succeeding and also being their weird selves. But there's also a ton of people who are being their weird selves and are not in the spotlight. Right. right? And we're afraid, we're afraid that if we show our quirks and our weird side or um, that it might rub some people the wrong way and it would inhibit us from becoming more successful or like accomplishing our goals. Uh, But after I broke my leg four years ago, I had a lot of time to think about this stuff and which direction I want to take my work in didn't have much of a social life because I was living up on a fourth floor walk-up apartment. Right. <laughs> so it took a lot for me to want to go downstairs <laughs> um, and and leave the apartment. So there were like weeks at a time that I wouldn't leave and it was pretty unhealthy at the time. Sure. But I recovered and it was a long recovery. It wasn't just a simple broken leg. I had like a few surgeries as well. Um, and I had bought an iPad at the time to start illustrating digitally, like directly um, from my brain to the iPad. It wasn't mm-hmm. like drawing on paper and then scanning it like I used to do. So I made a whole series sort of channeling that energy and that frustration that I had when I was recovering um, into a series of illustrations about skateboarding. Um, and there was, it wasn't intuitive. Like I got some advice from people and they were set, they were telling me like, where is that? Like put that into your work. 
And that was when it kind of changed for me. Yeah, that had to have been pretty validating because I, I get the um, the feeling that I, I think we all sort of get caught up in should we do this? We see we see how people operate and we we compare or we just kind of we make suppositions about how they got to where they got there. And then we, you know, either consciously or subconsciously, like buy into the the myth of like, what success means, right? And what, you know, what uniqueness means. And it's, it's all, it's all fluid. And it's all like, th- that's the beauty of like, someone like you, like doing it and being yourself in your art is like, you're saying this is who I am. And like, that's, that is the that is the aim, right? Yeah, definitely. That's the kind of clients I want to work with too. When I I don't want to work with just anybody. I want to work with somebody who really aligns with my values and and what I stand for and what I'm interested in. Um, ideally, you know. Yeah. So I think the more you hide your your unique things about yourself, uh, the harder it is to get that kind of work that lines up with who you are because if you're not putting it out there it's like people don't know that that's what you want to be hired for exactly yeah yeah Yeah. and and then you're hired for something maybe that's not sort of aligned with who you are and you're not like you're not in that space so you're not really exploring who you are right and then after many years of that kind of soul-sucking work it can just lead to burnout and then you feel like you got to switch careers completely i've seen people who do that generic graphic design work um, a lot of people who went to school with me uh, they didn't they didn't do a lot of stuff outside of their day job they didn't have many personal projects and now they're feeling like a lot of them are feeling really burnt out on it because they have to now start to discover like what is the work that I want to make mm. and I feel like I got I got really lucky in a sense there were like a few mentors in my life that were doing that they were just professionally being themselves and I would just ask them, so many questions about everything that they made and a lot of it just came down to intuition, but I think it's about um, taking that step in a, in an uncomfortable direction. Even like in in the beginning, it feels uncomfortable, but once you start to gain progress in a direction, um, you'd have to have faith in yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Did you grow up in an environment that was artistic and supportive uh, in that way? I did. I'm, I, I'm the only artist in my family besides my grandmother, and she was a stained glass artist. Oh, that's which is really fast. Really fascinating to me as a kid, getting to see her work. I didn't really appreciate it fully until I was uh, in my late teens, and she was sort of stopping to do it at that point because um, she was getting really old, and and it wasn't easy for her to do anymore. Um, but she did all kinds of different art too. She did watercolor. She did like needlepoint. Um, but her main thing was stained glass. And she would, I remember her, she had like a photo album of her best stained glass pieces. And the way she got work was she would just walk around the neighborhood or meet people and have the photo album on her. My, you know, it's wow. like the, the old school version of your portfolio site or Instagram. Right. That's amazing. I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So she would always get me art supplies and encourage me in books and, and all all different kinds of things to help me learn and find out what kinds of art I liked. She didn't force me to learn stained glass or anything like that. She just said, create whatever you want to create. And it was very encouraging. I love that. Did she do work in like, uh, like churches and things like that? It was mostly residential. Okay. Um, yeah. She wasn't the primary moneymaker in the family it was my grandfather and 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 she was a stay-at-home mom when she was when she became a mother and she had a a different job before she became a mother but then after she became a mother and she was looking for work to do things to keep herself busy she got into stained glass and then it turned into a career for her like for the last 20 years of her life yeah so when for you when did you start sort of taking your your art you know to heart uh, what do you mean? Take it to heart? Like taking it seriously, like saying like, look, this is, I guess maybe even before you started, you know, even went to school or something like when, when did it click for you that like, oh, this is, this is my jam. Um, now that I think about it, uh, I think it was when I did a, a black and white film photography class in high school mm. and 
I just really started to respect craft and artistry as a career at that point because the the teacher was a was a full-time photographer and then he got into teaching later in his life and it was like my first exposure to somebody who had a whole career in art over the course of their life like I said my grandmother only did it in her later years right so it was that class and then the other classes that I took in those uh, like junior senior year of high school you know it's sort of like when you're starting to get pressure of what you're what are you going to study in college sure. Eric you know <laughs> yeah. what are you going to be when you want to be grow up and I I didn't really know I just knew I was really good at at this thing, at drawing and at making things. Uh, and I was a curious person about that. And I didn't, and I guess I was, I was also good at science and math, but I couldn't see myself becoming a scientist or, or, you know, studying engineering or something like that. Sure. Um, so as soon as I started getting that pressure and also being surrounded by professional artists. Got it. Got it. And, and you, yeah started surrounding yourself by pro around professional artists like in college or later? Well, it was that one teacher that I had in high school, the black and white photography teacher. Got and then I took a graphic design class in high school, which was only like one day a week for half a, for one semester. Mm. But I, I learned how to use Photoshop and the teacher of that was an adjunct. You know, he, he taught one day a week, just graphic design. Got it. So he, he was a professional graphic designer and I think at that time uh, there was just more being shared online, so you could actually read these blogs and and find out about all different kinds of artists around the world. Uh, whereas, like before that, it was mostly magazines and books that I was learning about artists. Got it. Um, one of the things that I love, like I, so I went to college. I got a degree in English literature, but there was a there was a time where I I. Uh, I had a great art art teacher who was very encouraging. I wasn't great, but I I loved it. I loved the process of it. it. It was very, for me, it was, it hit at the right time in my life where it was it was just tremendously therapeutic to just be in that studio and to to paint or to draw or do whatever. And she was just so supportive. Like for you, has has creating art, you know, especially like early on in your life, uh, has it been therapeutic in that way? Has it been sort of like this activity that has sort of brought you peace and, and helped you in your life? It's funny because you can go through a whole roller coaster of emotions in one art project. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, yes, it can, it can bring me peace and it can bring me joy. But it can also be a huge source of frustration and stress if mm. there's a deadline or if there's um, if you just can't seem to make anything that you're enjoying. You know, you lost your groove. Mm. That's happened to me plenty of times. Um, and I, I so the answer is yes, it has been a source of of like a therapeutic activity for me. But it's also been the opposite at times. Sure, which is. I guess a great mic microcosm for just living, right? It's 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 both simultaneously. It's it's the ups and the downs. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it said before that it's the job of the artist to go through the the difficult inner work that most people don't want to do, mm. and then to express it in a way that makes other people feel understood and mm. seen. I love that. And I, yeah, I love that too. It's like. Uh, I think that's so true because for us artists to have to, not to have to, but to get to put things on paper and to create things that help other people identify uh, what's happening inside them or, or what they're going through. I feel like that's like such power. You can do so much with that. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. And there's, there's just so much power in knowing yourself and understanding what, lights you up, what frustrates you, you know, all of it, just the more knowledge we have about how we interact, uh, in the world as humans, uh, I think the better are, the better we're prepared for, you know, future scenarios, you know, um, and the better we are, you know, to create, I think. Yeah, that's right. Self-awareness, name of the game. <laughs> <laughs> so what have you, yeah. in your sort of art what have you learned about yourself have you you know in that sort of self-awareness journey in that sort of doing that inner work as you called it like what have you learned about yourself personally 
first thing that comes to mind is that I've I've learned that I'm an, a pretty impatient person. Mm. Um, I've I've purposefully developed a style these last couple years that is very fast, and it's because I don't want to be spending one week on the same piece of art, let alone one month or even longer. Mm. Um, there are some artists that their masterpieces are made over the course of years. Uh, but for me, that's not the route that I want to go. I like being able to draw now without even sketching. I just make art without even planning it. It's like mm. a improvisational technique. Sure. So that's one thing that I've learned about myself. Um, one thing I didn't mention is that I'm partially colorblind. So I can't see certain colors and it doesn't impact me that much in day-to-day -day life because it's only the desaturated colors that I can't see. It's like I bought a pair of pants before thinking it was black, but it was actually dark blue. Okay. And same, same thing happens on the higher, lighter end of the spectrum where I thought it was white, but it was actually a light green or something. Oh, I see. Um, and it depends on the lighting. It depends on a couple of different factors. So it's not that intense, but I've learned that I do gravitate towards extremes. So with the colors that I choose in my artwork, that's just an example of how I use extremes. I like black and white contrast I like really saturated colors because those are the ones that I can see <laughs> and um, so that's sort of a, a metaphor for my personality is I, I thrive on the roller coaster if I had a life that was really a flat line kind of the same routine every day mm -hmm. I, I really have trouble making a routine out sure. of out of almost anything, out of almost anything. <laughs> um, that's actually a stereotype that artists get all the time. Like yeah, right? yeah, artists yeah. can't keep a routine or like they can't even wake up early or get stuff done. I don't think I'm that bad, but I think, uh, I, whenever I try to regiment myself, I end up outsmarting myself by accident and, and just being spontaneous. You know, it could take all the scheduling and prioritization in the world, but a lot of times I'll just, I have to, when I have an idea, I need to work on that thing. <laughs> right, right. I admire that personally. I, I, I think there, uh, you know, there's probably drawbacks to that mode of living at times. But for me, um, when I've been able to operate in that way, and I, I do like a bit of chaos, um, I, I, I think there's presence and mindfulness in that, you know, like, like I'm thinking like your artistic style, like just showing up and just creating your thing without sort of sketching it out, without really kind of thinking about it. Like there's, I think you have to be very kind of centered and mindful, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also have to be, I mean, I, I, try, I do compare it to other sports sometimes. Mm. Uh, I guess I guess art isn't a sport, but I compare it to sports sometimes. Like when you think about the basketball player that is working on their foul shot, they show up and they practice, they repeat the same motions over and over. And I think the only way I can improvise is by having a sort of a system that I've created for myself and some muscle memory. Uh, when, whenever I start a new sketchbook or even sometimes a new drawing, I usually doodle the same thing in the corner. Or I write a word in the corner just to like so that there's not a blank page, mm. and that's just part of my system. Even though it isn't, that doesn't sound very spontaneous, but I think those those little those ground rules that I set enable the spontaneity to happen pretty quickly right after that. Sure, they're like the touchstones to your creative process. Yeah, or the the beginnings of my process. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. So the work you're doing. Um, Tell me a little bit about uh, the, you said earlier, like, you know, you want to work with the type of companies that, you know, like align with like your vision and your sort of artistic style. Like what, what companies are those and what, what are you looking for? Like on like a, I don't know, philosophical level, like what are you looking for in these companies, in the people behind them uh, to connect with them and make that sort of relationship? Ooh, that's a really big question, but I'll try to I'll try my best. <laughs> sure. Um, so the first thing is really just a gut feeling. Whenever I get an inquiry from a company, and then I start looking into what they're all about and what what they do for what, you know whatever their business model is. If there's something that is a red flag to me, like let's say, oh, it seems that they are using 
um, very wasteful materials to create their products. If it's mm-hmm. like a physical, a company that makes physical products, that's one thing that I care about. I care about the planet. So yeah. I would ask them and, and openly say, you know, like, I'd love to do something for you guys, but I, I'm, I'm, I'd love to have, have a phone call and just like chat about your goals and your business. I think there's too many of us graphic designers and artists that are just willing to take anything that comes our way. And that's a vicious cycle. Mm. and breaking out of that is something that I've worked really hard to do these last few years and I've sacrificed a lot and part of that means working a full-time job um, which I still have today so it's luckily it's for a company that I really believe in Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that company in a minute sure but yeah the um, the kinds of companies that I work that I like to work with a lot of them care not just about the profit but also about the people it's you know called like a triple bottom line where it's like people, profit, and planet. Mm. Um, so it's not just a, an assembly line of making things to make money. Right, right. It needs to, for me, it, I, I love when it goes a step a step deeper than that, and I really commend entrepreneurs and, and founders that can create that and also make it sustainable because it's not easy. No, no, it's uh, not. So I, I, I do work with companies that are not triple bottom line, but that's my ideal. Yeah. Right. Um, because it just feels like I'm really making a difference with my art, you know? Yeah, Not absolutely. just helping this company survive. Right, right. Yeah, so the company that I've been working for now for a little over three years is called WeWork. And some of you might have heard of this company because they've gotten pretty large over the last... Like, I got to see their growth in, in the last few years, and it's been awesome. Yeah, they're huge. Um, they're, like, all over the world now. Yeah, yeah. When I started, it was mainly in the United States and a couple other cities outside. Um, and yeah, it, I always struggle to to give like the whole pitch of what the company's all about because I'm sure I'm going to say something wrong. Sure, I get <laughs> and, it. Um, but it's all about it's really all about uh, creativity and community. So it's a platform for creators, is what they call it. It's not just a co working space, even though that's what a lot of people call call it. It's uh, it's it's physical space that you can rent out month by month or, or longer um, instead of having a regular office. But it's also about the communities that are built in these spaces. It's about all the things that they offer surrounding the membership. And it's a really amazing thing that they've built. Um, and what was I going to say? Yeah, so I, I started three years ago working in New York with them uh, on the, the, the art and graphics team. So we do all the art that exists inside the physical spaces and we collaborate with interior designers and architects and all kinds of different specialists uh, to create these spaces. And then about two years ago, they were expanding into Latin America and they needed somebody to go down there and build the team of graphic designers. And surprisingly, nobody else volunteered. So I got to go on this awesome year and a half long uh, adventure in South America. And I feel like I just got back even though it's been almost a year. That's incredible. And so, yeah, we opened up a bunch of spaces down there and built built a team of designers. And I didn't I didn't expect to enjoy being in a manager type role. Mm-hmm. I still had time to design and create stuff, but mainly I, they sent me down there so that I could build the team. Sure. And I was sacrificing some of my design time in, in exchange to get to travel um, and see places. And I'm really glad that I did it. Now I'm in a different role where I'm not a manager anymore. Um, back to being senior designer. So I have a little more time to design now. Nice. But I still do, I still do a lot of freelance projects. I still keep myself busy outside of WeWork. And like, I just launched these new screen prints today. Nobody asked me to do that. I just felt like making some screen prints and selling on my site. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, um, it's like the, I think the header sort of headline on your, on your site, Eric is, this idea that that art can bring people together right what what is exactly. that what does that look like for you like what do you when you say that what do you mean by that okay well perfect example would be the work i did in south america so imagine um a young white guy like me going down and and making art in some of these cities um I don't want to just copy and paste my culture and put it on the walls and, 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 you know, make art that would be cool in the United States and just assume that it would be cool everywhere and that everyone would love it. Right. Mm. I'm very culture. I'm very sensitive to the, the cultures and the biases that people have. 
So a lot of my work is actually research and finding out what are the things that people appreciate about this culture? What are the things that make, I don't know, uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina unique? And what are people proud of? And then working that into the artwork in a subtle way that isn't super obvious. You know, you wouldn't want to put a photo of the Statue of Liberty in, uh, in, a, in a WeWork in New York necessarily because right, right. it's just so, predict so predictable and obvious and cheesy. But well, what are the things that are a little bit more like you have to be a local to understand it? So we did a lot of that kind of artwork together as a team. And that's the kind of stuff that brings people together is it creates a conversation. It creates something that people want to share even take photos in front of the artwork. Because uh, sometimes it's immersive art pieces too. It's these these large scale murals, mm -hmm. and I think that's the most impactful work because it changes the whole space and it changes the vibe and how you feel in the space and and interact with it. Um, so that, that's kind of what I mean by how art can bring people together. It's pretty literal, <laughs> but it can also be about um, maybe an example of outside of outside of we work. Um, I think. In the skateboarding world, there's all these brands out there that that are making clothing and that are making accessories, whatever. And when you see somebody else on the street that's wearing the same brand that you're wearing, there's an instant connection there. And it's like, oh, okay, that person knows about this, like mm -hmm. this cool brand that I just found out about this year. And I think that the same thing can be done with art. You know, oh my God, you follow that artist, like you instantly feel a connection mm -hmm. with that. Yeah. No, I see that. And, you know, the murals you're you're referring to and you've done are giant, you know, these large scale pieces that that are, you know, you see it and it's a huge impact, right? It's like visually like, whoa, I'm I'm here. I'm like, I gotta gotta take this in, you know, and talk to my friends about it and I get it. The thing that I that really struck me about what you said just a moment ago is going into Buenos Aires or or, you know, other parts of the world and doing the research and using parts of their culture in the work itself. Like, I think that is so beautiful because one of the things I say in the show a lot is, uh, and, and what empathy is all about is about meeting people where they are and about sincerely trying to understand them and, 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 and see them for who they are. And that takes, you know, sometimes adopting some of their language, right? And that's exactly, I think, what you're doing with the art is you're you're meeting people where they are because you have this talent, this skill, this language in your murals and your art, and you can meet people through your through your art uh, in that way. And I think that's just so that's awesome. That's amazing. I love it. Thanks, man. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I did want to add that. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes we try to meet people where they are and we try to do the research and then we find out, oh, actually, wherever we got that uh, idea from actually wasn't a great source and mm. people didn't relate with this art and now they're complaining about it. <laughs> it's <laughs> sure. actually happened before. Yeah. Um, even if Can't the colors perfect. are too bright, like pe people don't like to work in a space or stay in a space where the the space feels claustrophobic or too vibrant because you can't focus on anything else but the color oh, everywhere, you know? Yeah. So a lot of it is about balancing the impactful moments with some quieter, more simple things, even if it's just a framed photograph of a, a nearby place that uh -huh. people like to go. Wow. And something familiar, familiar. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. So um, you're working with these big companies. Tell me about the, the day job that you have. That's the WeWork, man. That's, that's, oh, that's, that's the, the WeWork. Yeah. Okay. We work yeah. as the day job. Got it. Got it. Because you're senior yeah. designer. That's right. Yeah. Awesome. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. the team. The, the, I want to say one more thing about yeah, it because yeah, yeah. like it's so it's so like people don't really see this side of we work because it's not written about as much as all the other stuff. Um, when I started, it was about eight of us, uh, the art and graphics team, doing all the different locations. And now, uh, three and a half years later, it's over seventy. Whoa. So I don't know about you, but I don't know any company in the world that employs that many artists. I mean, we're graphic designers, but we're also illustrators and artists. And it's like, what company hires illustrators full time? Most of them use freelancers sure, for illustration. Sure. And I think that it's cool to see a company. And I hope that this continues to be a trend in in our um, in a lot of different industries, like the tech industry is is a great example. 
um, where they hire artists full time because some people don't want to do the freelance route and they would prefer to, you know, be on a team of artists. And I think it's just so cool to see them grow from eight to 70. <laughs> yeah. In, wow three years yeah that's incredible yeah the i mean the only like industry i can think of maybe that would sort of have full-time like artists is you know like a like weta or something like the digital sort of animation company uh in new zealand that does that did all like the lord of the rings stuff but i also heard that that maybe they (laughs) weren't paying their artists great so maybe that's not a good example (laughs) yeah it's it's tricky Cause it's like, how do you put a price on it? If you look at the canvases that, cause we don't just do murals, we do a lot of canvases too. Mm. If you look at the, the cost of a canvas in a gallery, it's like thousands and thousands of dollars sometimes. If it's really big and it's really well-known artists, it's like if you take the work that we're making and you put it in galleries, we could probably make more money from it. But somebody has got to do all that work to, you know, market it. And I think that's some, not all, not every artist wants to do that. So it's cool that some companies are employing artists full time. Um, Right. I feel like I had something else to say. What were we ta- what were we talking about before you mentioned that company in Australia? Oh, just um that um gosh, I have in the memory of a goldfish, Eric. Uh <laughs> <laughs> no worries, we can move um, on. I don't know. Well maybe oh, yeah, come- I remember what I was gonna say. Oh perfect. Um it was about the idea of a day job because like I I very rarely call it a day job. Because like even just that word has a connotation of like being a soul sucking day job. Sure <laughs> you know? does, yeah. I don't, I don't think that I don't consider it a day job in that sense of the word. It's it, it's a job, yeah. Like I get paid to do this work, and I work a relatively normal schedule, nine thirty to six or so. Um, sometimes there's longer hours. Sometimes I work the weekends if we're opening up a space on a Monday, and. Um, but but it's not. I don't go to the same office every single day. We travel quite a bit, and we, we're sometimes we're behind a computer designing at a desk, and then some other times we're on a ladder painting a mural. So it's not a regular office job in in that way at all. Yeah. No, I I couldn't imagine it being. Um, I don't think I'm wired for that type of job anyway. Honestly, no. I don't think I'll ever. Yeah. No, I, I you know so you know that my you know big boss is Pat Flynn. And I've had a string of, you know, I've always been sort of a writer editor for most of my career. And I've had terrible jobs. And I, uh, I've always sort of lasted maybe a year, sometimes two max. And working with Pat now and Matt and our team has been uh, like the longest (laughs) sort of uh, job that I've had because, uh, well, flexibility but most most of all it's it's the people and you know when you talk about eric like wanting to work with people who care about the planet and who care about others you know and and you know want to make a difference in the world in that that way and are mindful of others and have empathy like that that's that's who i want to work with too yeah definitely get that vibe from your team um with pat yeah. I'm glad um, that you found that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, so tell me about some of the, like, I read on your website that you do workshops. Tell me about that. Sure. Yeah. So I got into my first niche uh, after finishing graphic design school. Because what happens is you grad- you graduate with a portfolio full of all these random things that don't really relate to each other because they give you one class about websites and one class about packaging and one class about everything. So my first niche that I kind of focused on was typography and lettering. Mm. So once I feel like I had enough years of experience going down that path and I loved it, I loved focusing and calling myself a lettering artist and getting into that community and meeting so many other cool people through that. I think that's how I started to grow my audience in the beginning too, was through niching down into lettering and type. Um, So I started to offer these workshops that would be uh, either a three hour workshop, which can't really get that that much work done but it's it's a lot of uh a lot of like theory and technical teaching and then i give people resources to go and practice at home Mm. but i prefer the six hour one that i do and that's like where i would either go into a company or a school or even something that i launched to the public and i just reserved a space i've used WeWork a few times for those um and i just get everybody in a room there's no computers it's just paper and pencil and and sharpies and stuff and we just go crazy having having fun like 
everyone gets to walk away with their own piece, even if it's not completely finished. So that was my first kind of workshop that I did was the lettering. Then I did um, a different workshop about drawing on skateboards, which was really fun. That's um, awesome. I've only done I've only done two of those. I'd like to do one, another one maybe at the end of this year or, or early next year. And then I I also did a mur- a workshop about murals this year for the first time. So I I try to do one every three months or so, just to uh, keep myself entertained, I suppose. And people people ask for them, and I love sharing my gift. And if people want them out for it, it's it's always a really really great time. And the, something interesting that I learned through the workshops is that if I'm gonna charge money for them, which you know, for the time and all the supplies and everything, I, I really should be charging. Um, you know, if, if you're doing free workshops, it's like, it, it, it can be great in the beginning, but after a while, just like we said before, like everything can kind of turn into a job in some way. Sure. Yeah. Um, so if you're going to be doing workshops, it really helps to ha- to have, to be teaching something that other people can actually monetize themselves. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're going to have a hard time charging more than $50 for the workshop. Um, if fifty dollars is enough for your time, like that's that's fine. Fifty dollars per person, that is. And I usually don't like to work with more than a few people because it's like you can't go deep on a topic. Yeah. Because um, with the skateboard workshop, it's like how like how many people do you see being a full time skateboard artist? Not that many. It's it's very much like the exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know anybody who does who just draws on skateboards. But I do know a lot of people that are professional lettering artists and professional mural artists. So those classes actually sold a lot better because they were things that people were willing to invest a good, a decent amount of money for. Uh, whereas the skateboard ones, it's like, yeah, that's cool and fun, but that's a hobby. Sure. Yeah. Not saying, not saying that that hobby type workshops are are wrong or bad in any way. It's just like I had trouble selling them. So yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, because you got to pay for all the supplies. It's not, it's not just your time. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Or it could be bring your own supplies. I haven't tried that before. I like to make it really easy. Just show up and I'll provide everything for you. Yeah, no, that's cool. I, I think it's really neat that you do that. I, I've, I'm actually developing a business idea right now. And I uh, workshops will be a sort of a core part of the business. And I've just been kind of thinking about, you know, how I would do them and, you know, how I would sort of deliver them, you know, virtually, initially, and then in person, you know, uh, eventually. And, I don't know. I, I just think they're interesting. I, I love, I've always enjoyed the the concept of like taking your skill and, you know, teaching others and showing others how, how to maybe adopt that, that same skill. I think that's, that's admirable. Yeah. I didn't mention, but my mom's a teacher as well. So I've oh, wow. always had that, that influence on me. And I feel like I am a pretty, uh, a pretty clear combination of my parents and my grandmother. Mm. My mom's a teacher. My dad's a, in finance and business, and like my grandmother was an artist, so really can like I, I sucked up as much knowledge as I could from them, and I still continue to do that. Uh, and I just love I, I do love sharing and like teaching things, even if it's not in person. It can through be through my blog or a video or a podcast or something. I, I want to do more resources like that online because not everybody can make it out to your in person workshop just because yeah. of geographical. Uh, you know, distance, but I haven't done an online class yet or an online workshop. It's in the, it's in the cards for probably next year. Awesome. I look forward to seeing it. Do you, do you ever, um, like, I think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but like, as you were talking about like your parents and, and sort of your perfect combination of your parents and your, and your grandmother, do you ever, or have you ever had the pull to like, cause there's this, there's this, you know, me being like not an artist and not in that world. I, you know, you, you hear and you have this maybe uh, false perception that like, you know, you, you have to be this starving artist, right? Like there's this, there's this, uh, I don't know if it's a stigma or, you know, just a, a lie or, or whatever, you know, I don't know how you would interpret it, but like this starving artist sort of perception that people have about, working as an artist for a living like what have you ever battled with that do you ever struggle with that at all like what what is your perception of that i think early on i did struggle with that with the starving artist mentality Mm -hmm. Uh, when i one of my first jobs that i got out of school was working at 
uh, a company that was owned by MTV. And I felt like kind of a sellout for doing that because I wasn't a big MTV fan. And it was just felt like uh, it felt very like I was doing it for the money. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, no, but like, is this OK that I'm just doing this for the money? Of course, it's fine. Like you, got, you have to survive. You have to pay your bills. And when you're starting out, I didn't have a, a big audience following my work. Like people weren't hitting me up for freelance work and I didn't have a different job at that time. So right. it's fine to take jobs for the money. And, and if you're, you're still an artist, like you can still call yourself an artist. There's not like some secret society that gets to deem who's an artist and who's not an artist. Um, but you know, in recent years, I just don't even let that mentality into my, uh, vocabulary into my day to day because it's so toxic. Yeah. And if you hang out with people who think like that, that's how you're going to think, you know? And I just don't really associate, I don't even follow people online who, who think like that. Yeah. I get it. And I, I appreciate that. You know, it, it to me, it does seem um, like there's an aspect of it that's that's rooted in this, like limiting, like, uh, it's almost like this limited space, like, and, and to me that that that's not, there's no room for growth there. Like, there's no room for anything, but then like, this is who I am. And that's who I'm going to be. And there's no uh, persuading that there's no changing that. And I think that's any of us, if we do that to ourselves, when, when it comes to like a certain identifier, I think that's problematic. Yeah. And I think it's really undervaluing what you have to offer the world. You know, if you're saying this is my art, you know, you you can, you can have it for free because I don't know, I I don't know how to charge money for my work. I feel like I'm selling out if I charge you money for my work. Totally. Or yeah. And a lot of artists, they, they rely on one only one type of income, like I sell prints of my work, or I sell, I, I do client work, you know, commissions, stuff like that. But I think the the way that you can get out of that starving artist uh, cycle, because it's hard, it's like sometimes you fall into it by accident, right? Sure. If you have a, a tough a tough financial season, or if you got laid off from your job or something, it can happen, and then you end up making decisions just for the money over and over and over, and then it does kind of rule you if it does if it's not working out. So one way you can avoid that is by um, at least just like letting these other influences into your life outside of the art world. As soon as I started listening to podcasts about entrepreneurship and business, yes, I felt like a little bit slimy and weird when I started doing it, but you don't have to listen to everything they say. You can just take out the gold nuggets that relate to your situation and, and ignore the rest if you want. Yeah. Um, so learning how to, how to say, okay, I'm going to make money from client work, from workshops and from products. That's going to be my way to avoid becoming a starving artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. Um, well, uh, let's, let's start wrapping up here. I know you don't have, uh, too much time, but I did get, I did get one question, uh, from, uh, my friend Bryn, who's at brave Bryn studio, uh, on Instagram. She says, I want to know the story behind all his figures, where they came from and what inspires him. I guess those, that's maybe two questions. Sure, yeah. Thank you, Bryn, for the good question. Um, well, let's see. Uh, my figure that she's talking about is, I call I call it a blob, because <laughs> I couldn't think of a better name, and I think blob is pretty fitting. Uh, but it, it came out of when I moved down to Argentina a couple of years ago, and one, I was looking for a style that I could do quickly. Like I said, I was looking for some kind of repeatable motif, um, that felt unique to me and it just took me a while to develop it. And then two, it actually came out of a season where I was pretty sad and I was missing home. I was in a long distance relationship at the time and I had some days where I just felt like I, I shouldn't be there. I should be back home or Mm -hmm. back in the States. And, um, I didn't, my Spanish wasn't very good. So I would spend these days just like my brain would explode by before 2 p.m. just trying to speak Spanish all day <laughs> and trying my best to understand what was happening around me and the context. And um, I, I think the first drawing of the blob that was recognizable as to what it is today was I drew that in like when I was in my bed, like kind of curled up in a ball and very sad, <laughs> <laughs> which you wouldn't expect because if you look at it today, if you look at it now, it looks very fun and happy and the colors I use are, are, they don't look 
sad at all. Right. <laughs> um, but that, that's the story of where it came from. And I didn't think much of it when I first drew it. Um, it definitely didn't come out of nowhere. There were some drawings that I did a while ago that were, that had some elements of it, like the geometry of it, or I had this other character that I used to draw that had more features, like it was wearing a hat. Um, but that's the story. Yeah. I love that. And what this second question is like, what, what inspires you? And maybe who inspires you? Yes. So I'd say my two biggest influences as far as artists, uh, visual artists would be like Keith Haring and MC Escher. Oh yeah. Uh, I had one, I had this one professor in college that told me he wanted to do what MC Escher did, but do it with letters. And I thought that was such a cool idea of like taking some other artists philosophy that really resonates with you, but doing it in your own way. Mm. So, um, those are the two, two artists that really inspire me, but also just, this is so like cliche and, and, and everything, but everyday life inspires me. It's, it's not hard for me to find inspiration. And I think going to school for design and, and really studying the process of some of these people who came before me is what opened my eyes to where you can find inspiration in, in daily life. Like I also did a minor in product design, so I was starting to like study how simple things that we use and touch every day are actually, there's this whole world uh, behind the way that we interact with the, with the world. You know what I mean? It's like there's this unseen world. I feel like as a designer, I can see things that people can't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so j even just like traveling and, and looking at signage or looking at um, the way the city was laid out and that kind of stuff really inspires me. Got it. I love that. And nature too. And nature, like I just got back from a trip to Pacific Northwest, my first time out there and it makes me feel like I want to live somewhere closer to nature sure. in the future. Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, let's uh, let's start wrapping it up. Um, we always wrap up the show talking about our empathy heroes. This is the part of the show, listeners, where my guests and I each mention uh, someone in our lives could be even a character from a book or um, you know uh, just an inspiration in our lives. Someone who's just a great uh, empathetic human. Um, so I will go first to give Eric a moment to think on his empathy hero. My empathy hero this week is uh, my good friend Alex Carroll, who uh, who <laughs> reached out to me like last week, and she knows I've been working on this business sort of idea, and she's like, "Hey, I have a friend who's kind of not working right now, and and you know, I talked to her, and she would like maybe love to help you out, you know, like organize or do whatever." And um, you know, the the relationship with a friend hasn't worked out yet so far, but. Uh, it was it was just a nice sort of thing. My friend thought of me, you know, thinking of me doing this thing, and she reached out to her friend and reached out to me, and it was just, uh, it was very sweet and thoughtful. And so, Alex, my friend, is my empathy hero this week. That was nice, man. <laughs> yeah. My empathy hero uh, is my brother, Josh. My brother, Josh, is two and a half years older than me, and he lives in Florida, so I don't get to see him that much. But I talk to him every single week, and he's always looking out for me, just like your friend. And um, I'm really grateful that I have gotten to see him a few times this year already. And I'm just really grateful for that relationship in general, because not everybody is close with their siblings. Right. And I feel like we have this this unbreakable bond that we'll always have. And uh, so this week, my empathy hero is Josh Friedenson. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> Uh, well, Eric, where can the Feely Humans out there connect with you, follow your work, uh, sign up for your workshops, all that stuff? Well, I hang out at this one donut shop all the time. <laughs> um, no, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, you can check out my work on, on Instagram at f.dot, so it's E-F-D-O-T, keeping short and sweet. And my website, uh, if you want to check out the rest of my work or see what I have available uh, in my shop, uh, then it's f.studio.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking about your art and your heart and all that stuff. I appreciate you. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for inviting me on. It was really, really good chatting. And uh, yeah, we got to catch up again soon. Absolutely. And to you listeners... Yeah. I'm here, you're here, we're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, inspiring pale blue dot. We have each other. It's you, me, empathy.
Oh,